Hi everyone, and welcome back to Let's Read Out. I apologize for the really big delay since our last episode. It has been a very busy summer, both personally and professionally, from getting engaged to starting life as an attending to taking the certifying exam, but I promise that new episodes, new guests, new segments are on the horizon. I am super excited for my guest today. She is one of my closest friends, future bridesmaid at my wedding next summer. She graduated college at a mere 20 years old before heading to Brown for medical school. In her last year of medical school, she actually went to Harvard to get an MPH. She went to Cornell for her OBGYN residency and then went to one of the top fellowship programs for REI or reproductive endocrinology and infertility. Today, we're gonna be talking about hysterosalpingograms or HSG, a common procedure in the infertility workup, not only performed by radiologists, but also OBGYNs as well. Welcome to the show, Dr. Julia Kim. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so glad that we were finally able to sit down and find a time for this. How have you enjoyed the transition back to, I wanna say the best coast? It has been a great transition. Um, After 14 years on the East Coast, I am relearning again as to how friendly Californians are. And it's been really amazing to get to explore a new neighborhood. Well, I'm just thrilled to have you back on the on the West Coast now, Julia. So let's dive in. For our new residents out there, can you tell them what an HSG procedure is? An HSG, or a hysterosalpingogram, is part of the basic first-line infertility workup, and we use it to check for tubal patency as well as to also get a sense of what the uterine um, cavity contour looks like. Are there any other indications besides the fertility workup? Aside from checking tubal patency, we sometimes will use an HSG even in patients doing IVF if we suspect that there is a hydrosalpinx on ultrasound. Um, because if there's a hydrosalpinx present, even if you're circumnavigating the fallopian tubes through IVF, it could be a source of potential infection and lead to lower implantation rates after we do an embryo transfer. Wow, that is so interesting. I didn't know that, and that is why you are on my show today. I'd like to ask you about, you know, I often say mild, moderate, or small or moderate. Is that appropriate for grading the hydrosalpinges? Yeah, I think that's a fair descriptor. The other thing that is helpful um, to also delineate is where the hydrosalpinx is occurring. So if it's proximal fallopian tube versus distal. Oh, I love that. I will definitely start adding that to uh, my descriptions. What about patients have often asked me about antibiotics? What are what is the positioning on that? This is sort of a controversial topic um, in the OBGYN world. Most um, practices will just by default prescribe antibiotics ahead of time for patients just to cover them in case. But according to ACOG guidelines, you don't actually have to um, put patients on prophylaxis ahead. It would only be if that you found an abnormality at the time of, of HSG that um, that you would put them on. I find that oftentimes uh, the radiologist uh, explains the procedure to the patient uh, as they haven't seen you or the reproductive uh, endocrinology and fertility specialist yet. 
what's the best way to explain the patient uh, the procedure? What do you? What are some terminology that you use? How do you explain it in a a layperson's terminology? I tell them it's an imaging study. The study itself takes you know less than ten minutes. It can be pretty uncomfortable, um, like really bad menstrual cramps. Um, I think that. That probably is the scariest part for the patient, um, but I tell them, you know, it's not typically done under anesthesia unless, you know, in extreme circumstances, um, and that it is a useful study for um, dictating treatment in terms of whether we're able to do timed intercourse or an IUI, which is an intrauterine insemination, or if their tubes are not patent, then we have to move on to IVF. That's certainly a great description, especially because patients often think it's performed under general anesthesia and are surprised to learn when it isn't. Um, What do you recommend in terms of um, pain medication or anti-anxiety for the patients prior to the procedure? I generally tell patients to take Motrin um, about an hour or two ahead of time um, to help with the uterine cramping. Um, If they have an NSAID contraindication, then certainly they could take Tylenol. And patients who are especially anxious about speculums or gynecologic exams um, can take uh, an Ativan um, ahead of time. I want to take a step back for a second. When is the optimal time period um, to perform an HSG? The most important thing is where they are in their menstrual cycle. And typically that would be asked before booking, only because if um, patients are um, kind of later in um, in their cycle, if the, the endometrial lining is quite thick, that can sometimes um, distort the uh, uterine imaging as well as um, it could theoretically lead to an increased risk of infection. After the procedure, I usually inform the patients what to expect, some sticky residue, um, but what about uh, in terms of intercourse? Um, some say uh, or describe the procedure as both diagnostic and potentially therapeutic. Are tampons okay? Is sexual intercourse okay? Can you clarify? I think patients can use tampons if they want. I, I don't, as long as they're you know taking them out within the appropriate interval around you know no longer than six to eight hours. Uh, I think it's fine for them to use. My what I generally tell patients is light bleeding, anything lighter than a period is normal and fine. Anything heavier than a period would be unusual. Um, And then in terms of pain, light cramping is okay. Any severe pain would be very unusual, and we would tell them to call the office. And to the intercourse point? So we don't give contraindications um, to to intercourse. They can have sex that day if they want. Um, And similarly, what you were saying about therapeutics, there has been evidence that has shown improved pregnancy rates in the cycle um, that a patient gets their HSG. I think primarily because the thought is if there was a small blockage there, the HSG may essentially kind of push through it. Um, so we actually tell often will tell patients that they should try and time ovulation and intercourse um, in that same cycle with the HSG. I also like to have residents inform the patients that it's about a teaspoon or so of contrast that we utilize for the exam. If a patient does not want contrast and declines the exam, what are other alternatives? So there are some fertility centers that will use 
um, a hysteroscopy or saline sonogram as sort of a proxy for an imaging study. And what they will do in that case is they'll specifically look at the trajectory of the bubbles that they instill into the uterine cavity. And their thought is if the bubbles migrate through that the tube is patent. And if they don't, then it's not. My only concern with using that is you don't know necessarily if they have a hydrosalpinx or not. Um, and certainly even patients with hydrosalpinges may still have a patent tube. Um, but that certainly could be an alternative. The other option, of course, um, especially if you have a high suspicion, is to do a laparoscopy with a chromotubation. Before beginning the procedure and taking a good history, besides prior surgical history, such as for a salpingectomy, any other um, important points? Aside from asking about history regarding a prior salpingectomy, also asking if they've had any uterine surgery, um, whether that be for a fibroid or um, you know anything else that may distort their uterine contour would be helpful to know. That's perfect. I'm definitely going to start asking about that or inquire about that. So why don't you go ahead and uh, tell us a little bit about uh, how you start the procedure. So we first uh, position the patient in the lithotomy position, make sure that she is comfortable. We try and use the narrowest speculum possible, so a Peterson's as opposed to a Graves, uh, make sure that the patient is well relaxed. and then we will often give lidocaine at, the, at 12 o'clock on the cervix to numb the area for when we place the tenaculum to try and help um, with uh, the analgesia of the procedure. Then we will place the tenaculum and then um, position the catheter. Some programs use sort of a, a metal acorn catheter. Others will use a, a flexible plastic balloon catheter. Um, we'll then attach the, um, the dye to the end of that catheter. We'll have our um, tech get into position with the floor machine. We'll take a scout, and if everything is in good position, then we will inject the dye. Um, we generally recommend, especially at the very beginning, trying to inject slowly because sometimes that can help you catch um, you know, certain filling defects on the image with regards to the uterine cavity as opposed to going too quickly. And if I see a filling defect, that suggests... A filling defect in the uterine cavity could signify a uterine polyp or a fibroid. There are instances where it's just an artifact bubble, but it could um, certainly represent an intracavitary lesion. Is a tenaculum pretty common? So I would say most programs, or at least most providers that I've worked with, use a tenaculum at 12 o'clock on the cervix, and that's to help get a better image of the uterus. Um, As you know, most patients' um, uteri are either antiverted or retroverted. So if there is a concern for an anomaly and the uterus is not perfectly um, flat on the image, sometimes the, the characterization can be a little bit distorted if we don't have a tenaculum there to straighten out the, um, the uterus. And besides a frontal and two obliques, uh, any other images that you acquire? We generally get all of the images that we can to assess the uterine contour as well as tubal patency. And then we often will have the x-ray tech um, shift the fluoro machine to take side um, views around the abdomen as well. 
And if I don't see appropriate spillage and I'm concerned for blockage, can you walk me through your thought process? So one of the things that comes up a lot in our literature is um, something called a proximal tubal blockage. When we see a proximal blockage as opposed to a distal blockage, there is a fair proportion of the time that it's not a real obstruction and that it's actually caused by tubal spasm. So if we see that, and especially if it's unilateral, we often will repeat um, the HSG or attempt a cannulation at that time in the room um, with a small um, guide wire, um, or you know, depending on kind of the patient's clinical picture, if they're going to go to IVF anyways, we, we then wouldn't necessarily repeat it. If the patient can tolerate it, should I give it a little bit of time to see if this is spasm? If you see a proximal blockage and if the patient can tolerate it, um, it may be worth waiting uh, a little bit and gently reinstilling the dye. Um, but oftentimes I find patients are, are too uncomfortable, um, in which case um, you would essentially counsel the patient that this could be a tubal blockage, or it may just be that you had a tubal spasm at that time. Something that I want to make sure that we talk about is uh, uterine anomalies. Can you elaborate a little bit? The important thing when you see a uterine or a malarian anomaly is to remember that HSGs only tell us about the uterine cavity. They don't tell us anything about the external uterine contour. So for example, a uterine septum can look identical to a bicornuate uterus on an HSG. So if you see something that could represent one or the other, um, you should tell the patient that it's impossible to know based on the uh, HSG alone. We would then recommend as a follow-up study, a 3D ultrasound or an MRI to characterize the external contour. Um, and the reason why that would be important is as a an infertility specialist, if it's a uterine septum, that's something that I would go in and surgically resect and take care of um, because those patients are at greater risk for miscarriages. But if it's a bicornuate uterus, um, that's something that we would not operate You are wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, What about, uh, let's move into tips, tricks, troubleshooting. What is your approach? So in terms of troubleshooting entry into the cervix and the uterus, our recommendation typically, if you haven't done this already, is to place a tenaculum to help straighten out the cervical canal. Because sometimes if the uterus is especially antiverted or retroverted, Um, the barrier to entry is just that curve. So placing a tenaculum and straightening things out will allow you to gain entry pretty well. Um, And then aside from that, might recommend cervical dilation. What if I don't have access to a tenaculum? What other ways can I troubleshoot? If you don't have a tenaculum and your OBGYN consultant can't get there for a while, it may be worth having the patient try and fill her bladder more by drinking more fluid because if it's a an antiverted uterus, the bladder filling up will actually press down on the uterine fundus and potentially help straighten out that canal. I will definitely try that technique next time. What about any misconceptions of the procedure? One of the things 
that I think sometimes confuses patients and we often need to counsel them a little bit more on is when they have a normal HSG and then they are still concerned about their inability to get pregnant. What we sometimes remind them is that tubal patency does not necessarily equate to normal tubal function. So in an an appropriately functioning reproductive system, the fallopian tubes should always be um, peristalsing with the goal of getting an egg from the ovary towards the uterus and then propelling the sperm from the uterus to the fallopian tube because eggs are actually fertilized in the fallopian tube first and then migrate down to the uterus. When they don't migrate down appropriately, that's when we have an ectopic pregnancy. But sometimes even though tubes may be open on an HSG, we have to remind them just because they're open, it doesn't, the HSGs don't tell us anything about normal peristalsis. We are almost running out of time. Is there anything else that you think uh, residents, radiology or OBGYNs should know about the procedure? I guess the one tip I would have would be that and I didn't learn until I was a little bit later in fellowship, um, would be to push the HSG dye as slow as possible. Um, And that will help with better images in terms of characterizing the uterine cavity and also be less uncomfortable for the patient um, in what is inherently a, a stressful and uncomfortable procedure. Wow, Julia, that was incredible. You are as usual, just just brilliant, and just I'm just so in awe of everything that you've accomplished, and I'm just so proud to call you my friend. This was so much fun. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I hope we can cross over more often. Um, I know we can definitely learn a lot by collaborating. For sure. Well, that's it for today. Thank you so much again, Dr. Julia Kim, and I hope you will take some time to enjoy life outside of the reading room. 